1: The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together.
2: Hey, friends. Here we are. Here we are. Uh, it's, uh, it's great. I, I always want to say it's great to see you, but I'm not looking at you. You're not looking at me. I'm this looking is at a, you though. This is an audio. This is a digital audio file that Here's you are looking at you, man. listening to. Uh, but it's, uh,
3: we got a few announcements, just things to let some, you know about
2: some stuff uh, to let you know about before we uh, get to Chris Nye, yeah, we do. Uh, which was a, uh, which was a fun episode, uh, to record fun interview. Um, really thoughtful guy. looking forward to that. So, uh, yeah, just a couple things uh, to mention. Matt, do you want to mention our membership community on Patreon? Patreon
3: is up and running. It's patreon.com backslash gravity leadership. We've got... Forward
2: slash, but f- is it it's forward? not a backslash, no. It's not a backslash? No. It's so confusing which way the slashes are going. Yeah, oh. if you do a backslash, it'll just... That's,
3: Don't backslash it. No. Forward slash it. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I should just say slash. <laughs> slash. That's, yeah, it's just that's, a slash. Uh, let's run this back. <laughs> We've got a Patreon a community. Patreon.com slash... Gravity Leadership. There it is. It's up and running. Um, I, I'm i super stoked about it. If you haven't been there to check it out yet, check it out. I think we are um, allowing people to support us in financial ways. I know a lot of you have asked about doing that, but also providing and creating value that we can only uh, provide and create as we get smaller, uh, more intimate Mm-hmm. More um, confidential, more safe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we are up yeah. to twenty-two Patreons, patrons. 20, 22 patrons, twenty-two
2: patrons as of this recording. That's great. So that uh, yeah, really, <laughs> Patreones. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's been it's been really great. Uh,
3: and when you sign up, you get a patronus, right?
2: Uh huh. Yep. You get your <laughs> Is own. Is that patronus. how that works? <laughs> yep. I think that's that's all. Rela- they're all related. Anyway, patronus. check that out.
3: Check that out, and uh, we'll see you there. Uh, Ben and I are going to release our next practitioner podcast Yep. by the time this is out.
2: Probably, yeah. It'll be be released, uh, so there'll be like two or three episodes of the practitioner podcast there for you to listen to. Uh, Again, it's a great way to support us and a great way to um, partner with us uh, in the work uh, that we're doing. It helps us a great deal to be able to um, just, yeah, have some sustainable uh, income. That helps us do what we do, because we're all bivocational, and uh, we're all kind of cobbling this together as we go. Um, do we need to talk about anything else, guys, Speaking of, we start?
3: Speaking of cobblers. Cobblers. Coaching, buddy. Yeah. Coaching. we got some coaching
2: starting. Yes. Speaking, speaking of cobbling things together, um, that's oftentimes how it feels uh, when we're getting coaching cohorts together. But uh, Gravity Leadership Academy is a big part of what we do at Gravity Leadership, and right now we are assembling two to three new... Cohorts. Some of them are year two cohorts, but um, I think uh, one or two of them are going to be year one cohorts, uh, which is just kind of a—it's uh, where we train people uh, to do the th- kinds of things that we talk about on this podcast. Um, and there's really no substitute for it. Um, you're really just walking through learning how to detect and pay attention to God's activity in our lives and how do we surrender to that and participate more deeply in it. Uh, learning to take all things that are happening in our life as um, a place to meet God. And so if that interests you, uh, there's a link in the show notes, uh, but but check it out. It's gravityleadership.com slash coaching, and we are real-time pulling together new cohorts right now, probably... Next week we're starting so Yeah, so get into it, act now yeah. if you're year interested, one and year twos, right? We've yep. got some year ones and yep. year twos year, one, year ones and year two cohorts starting So if you're interested, uh, those are probably uh, The train is leaving the station So uh, email, email us <laughs> uh, If you want in on those things Alright All right. I think that's it Let's we, get into Chris and I We've yeah. we got some events coming up But we'll uh, that'll be just a teaser Next week Next week we'll talk about uh, some events that we got coming up uh, Here's Chris and I
3: So, today we're joined uh, by Chris Nye, and Chris lives in California, Silicon Valley, and you're a pastor, Chris, I know this, because the back of the book says it, but you've written a book <laughs> called Less of More, um, How the Kingdom of God and the American Dream are One and the Same. That's the <laughs> subtitle? Is <that>? No. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> Chris, give us an introduction about who you are, what you spend your time doing, and then we'll just uh, jump into chatting about this book.
4: Yeah, I've been married to my wife, Allie, for nine years, and we live in California here, and um, I've been a pastor for a lot of my life. Um, I kind of graduated from um, college and did internships and started studying the Bible and leading Bible studies and um, just grew in my calling as a pastor, and that journey has taken me from uh, Portland to a couple churches up there doing youth ministry and associate pastor pastoral work to down here in the Bay Area. About three years ago, my wife and I moved here and uh, did some work in the inner city of San Francisco and uh, then moved out to the Silicon Valley where I pastor now. So I'm, I'm an associate pastor at a church called Awakening Church. We're a church plan of like seven years. And I joined about a little over a year ago to take on a lot of the discipleship, spiritual formation, teaching, um, and uh, yeah, doing church plant stuff. So you do kind of everything. You guys know that. Sure. Know? Yeah. Jack, <laughs> yeah, and Jack of all trades.
3: Seven-year-old church plant in the Bay Area, that's like you're a dinosaur now.
4: It's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, we Our planting pastor is still our lead pastor, and he says, man, there's like two or two three of us left from just seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah. We have a friend
3: yeah. a friend who's a pastor out there, and he's uh-huh. been there a long time, and he says it's like eighteen months every eighteen months a new church plant comes, and all the same Christians jump to that church plant and they grow oh, to accurate. a few hundred people, and then the next hot new yeah. church opens, and they all go to that church um
4: how, that's true is that true we We were once that hot new church um and then everybody <laughs> left and then, <laughs> and then we became a real church, yeah. <laughs> So, oh, dude,
2: that's a, that's a great theology is, right there.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, that's to the, that's the tell your
3: next book, uh, when, yeah. when you're no longer the hot new church. Yeah. yeah, then
2: you become a real church. How to become a real church. Yeah. A pin, no, the Velveteen Rabbit story. I was uh, thinking Pinocchio, but he's... Well, he wants to become a real boy. Yeah, a real boy. There a real go. boy, yeah. And the Velveteen Rabbit, he wants to become real. I don't know. My mind's on literature.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. Chris, how did you... Real quick, what... How do you understand the fact that you guys didn't close up shop? How do you understand that you were able to endure and uh, mm. make it when other churches closed up? Um, well, I wasn't
4: there, so
3: well, that's <laughs> that's probably a big part of it. Right? That's probably yeah. a huge, huge part of it. Yeah, huge
4: <laughs> positive. I wasn't there to screw it up. Um, no, I, I. You know what? Our 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 founding pastor again. He's still our lead pastor. He, he tell he tells a, a, a great number of stories where. Um, there was a season where people were leaving and people were going off to the next new thing and they had been disappointed by our new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause that's what happens, right? It's the new thing. And then reality hits and people are disappointed by it. They leave. Right. And he says like, he just learned to lead from his knees and from desperation hmm. and, um, not saying that when you are desperate, it always ends up working with your church, right? Sure. Uh, there's, Seasons where you become desperate and God teaches you to close the doors. Yeah. But um, I do think that kind of like broken heart uh, is is what helped our church at least have a chance. And sure. then some really great key people, older people, we were a very young church plant, right? So some older, wiser people stepping in during that season, I think as well, to steward the vision and to support the ministry was, was probably huh. essential. It's great. Yeah.
2: That's really good. That's
3: great. Well, uh, Chris, you have written a book um, that is about living in spiritual abundance in the age of never enough. That's the actual subtitle. There um, you go. Right. You got it. Uh, you got it. What What led you to write this book about? I mean, the book is basically about how the consumptive ideologies and philosophies of living in America, how they, how it's not a spiritual, but it's actually a destructive, damaging force on our souls. Um, and how then the kingdom of God is distinct and prophetically uh, corrects that. So what what led you to write this book?
4: Yeah, I wanted to write uh, more of a theology of accumulation, which you're were, you were kind of hinting mm. at, rather than there's so many great books on like money and possessions. I didn't want to just write a book about money and possessions. Um, and the way that I came to this I, I, I tend to just write out of my pastoral work. I've, I've always been a writer, but, um, pastoring focused my writing a lot, um, and kept me less scattered. And it's really been about the last three years of my, my work as a pastor. I mentioned that when I moved to the Bay Area, I didn't immediately come to the Silicon Valley. So I, I was in the inner city of San Francisco and working there and, uh, living kind of in the, in the inner, uh, and working in the inner city. And, uh, I would go in between the Silicon Valley and the inner city every day just by taking the train, which if you don't know California geography, it's like taking the richest place and more of a suburban climate to one of the poorer places in the inner city. And what I started to see between the rich and the poor, um, our our community in, in the more kind of wealthier area. And then our community in the, in the poorer areas was, um, that really across both there was a hunger for, for more. Right. So if you were, um, You know, poor middle class or wealthy, it it just wasn't enough, Um, not only materially, but um, um, even spiritually, right? Like, Hmm. there's a craving that, like, Christ is it's kind of a Gnosticism, right? Where you're like, I'm trying Hmm. to ascend to the next level with churches. Like, this church is just not, you know, doing for me what I want it to do. Yeah. And so I need something more from my church and more from my community and more from, Um, And of course, the material side of these things too, right? So um, Mm -hmm. that was kind of the stuff that I was really interested in as a pastor and the conversations I started to have with a lot of people in the Silicon Valley, which was like people working for Facebook and for Google that I started to interact with that would serve with me in the inner city, um, would go and serve for like an hour or a day with us, with the poorest of the poor, and then go right back out on Monday uh, to their job and and work to to build and to build and to build. And what I realized was like, man, the church is um, is absolutely involved in that. We're swimming in that water too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've all been discipled, and um, that more is better and growing is better. And how, how could your business be bad if it was growing? You know, how could your business be be bad if it was moving to the next level? In the same. With our churches, right? It's like, man, there's no way it's bad if your church is growing. You know what I mean? Yeah, (laughs) it's like, there's no. It's like, how how could this be bad? This is a great thing. And I think what we've come to, I, I, you know, the timing of the book is interesting because I didn't have time to really write on it. But I think when I was like in the editing process and it was being released, some of those scandals came out that were bigger, right, around some of the mega churches where you're like, Mm. oh, this healthy things grow thing. Is not actually always true, right? Yeah. Sometimes right. cancer grows. Cancer grows, yeah, right. can, and yeah. cancer
3: grows more rapidly than healthy things, right? That's one yeah. of the things yeah. that, that doesn't they don't sh- it doesn't have the shut off valve, right? I'm gonna get yeah. real. I, I'm gonna flex my biology muscles. Ooh, here. Oh, yeah. yes. There's a shut off <laughs> valve. <laughs>
2: That's the technical term for it.
3: No, so yeah, so cancer grows more rapidly, which isn't a sign of health. Yeah. It's actually right. a sign of disease.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was just I was just listening to uh, a podcast where they mentioned uh, casuistry. No, not oh, that. Okay. Uh, they, uh, but it's a it was another one where they were um, talking about people in the economy now are starting to realize this and think about this. Maybe not uh, in Silicon Valley yet, um, but there's this center somewhere in Europe where I think it's called like the Center for Sustainable Prosperity, and they're starting to think about these questions of like how do we envision economic models. Where growth isn't the only goal. Like, I yeah. think that's that's the sort of the our economy, like capitalism has sort of taught us that if it's growing, it's good, it's fine, you know, yep. like keep going, right? And you've, you know, we imported that into the church world. But now there's, you know, even in the sort of the secular ec- world of economics, people are starting to realize, wait a second, this is this doesn't work, yep. you know? Like the CEO can fire a bunch of people and the stock price goes up, but like is that, on the whole, good for the common good? You know what I mean? Right, Like, right. Or is it only good for a few people, and then you know, we've got people in unemployment, and the government has to step in? You know what I mean? Like, Trying to look at all of these things and say, there, there's got to be a different way of imagining what yeah. flourishing actually looks like. In, in, and that's just in the economy. I think I'm hearing you say, like, that, that has been imported sort of without, we've swallowed it whole without thinking in the church. Right. Yeah. The same, I, the same yes. Ab-
4: absolutely. And I I just think that that could be cast across so many areas of our our culture. I think it's something that's true that God's trying to teach us that there's limits to our existence. Mm. There's limits that we have to respect boundaries that we've been given yeah. um, in the created order. And one one of the endorsements that I sought out for this book that nobody in the Christian world really cares about was a guy named Bill McKibben. I wanted him to read this book. Oh, yeah. Who's a who's a climate activist yeah, yeah, because he's also a Christian oh. and I wanted him to read my book so badly and was so grateful that he did and gave me the endorsement. I think I was the only one who was really grateful for it, but <laughs> because, because I think he wrote a book called deep economy about the limits of human communities. Mm. And in that book, he has a little page on the Christian church and he's just like, I wish Christians would just think about this more. And it's just one page. Then he goes <laughs> on to more smart things with his arguments. Yeah. But but i think he, he his his uh his level of expertise with the climate is exactly true what you were saying about economics right mm. at some level the earth is decaying not because god hates us but because we <laughs> ourselves i guess i don't know like we we right. are not we are not stewarding that which yeah. god has given
2: yeah mm-hmm. well we're beholden to an ideology that 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 doesn't allow us to see what's happening you mm. know what i mean it doesn't allow us to see what we're doing Um, Say more about that. What do you mean? Well, I I feel like um, what you're saying, Chris, is like, we've got this ideology that growth is always good, right? So if it's growing, how could it be bad? Um, Bigger is better. Right. Despite, you know, the scandals, despite the evidence (laughs) to the contrary. But because we just so wholeheartedly believe that and assume that, it's like a knee-jerk assumption. Um, I think, you know, the same thing happens with, you know, with the climate is where we're like, well, you know... More is better, and so let's let's keep going and just trust that it'll all it'll all work out. If it's growing, it's good. Uh, somehow, the invisible hand or somebody, you know, some you know, God's going to sort of save us out of it, or we'll figure it out somehow. But that ideology, I think, blinds us to uh, the deeper questions that I think we need to ask. Like you said, I love the title of that book, Deep Economy. Yeah, um, and I was just reflecting that I th- I think the word one of the words that's been really helpful for me thinking about these things lately has been the word flourishing. It's been kind of a a new word in theological circles lately. But I I was I was connecting that to your discussion of limits, where it's like there are limits. And we like the ideology we live in sort of reflexively feels like that feels like bad news to us. Oh shoot, there's limits. You know, God's like laying limits on us, you know, he's trying to keep us down. But actually, you know, what if the new imagination I think is something like, well, what if the limits are unto our flourishing? What if honoring those limits would actually create more flourishing for more people? If we would just yeah, that. Yeah, that's partly,
4: that. uh, have you guys read um, Jonathan Pennington's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount? Yes. yes. Yeah, we preached
3: yeah. that last fall and used, that was one of our commentaries we used.
4: Yeah. Yes, okay, us, us too, us too. Yeah, incredibly important resource. And he uses that word yes. to translate the Greek for blessed, right, for the makarios. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just think, to, to your point, the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly limiting, yes. right? It's like it limits your sexual ethic uh-huh. probably the most in, for Americans, right? That's right. the most limiting factor. But yeah. beyond that, the financial limitations it puts on you, yeah. the social limitations it anger, puts on you. puts, puts a little oh. anger. Yep,
3: yeah, it does. Yeah.
4: Prayer, fasting, all those things, right? And yet, to, to, to Pennington's point and to yours as well, right, like that is the life, the narrow road, that yes. leads to life.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it leads to life. It actually is unto our flourishing. So we we'll get cranked.
3: So we get cranked up in America. American Christians, we get cranked up about certain things, right? There are certain things that really, really bother us, right? We really care about what we really care about pagans, un- unbelievers, right? Mm-hmm. We really yeah. care about sexual ethics, right, okay. uh, including um, abortion. And who you get to marry? What uh-huh. else we care about? We really care about drinking, dancing, yeah, some, poker playing.
2: You know that's loosened up a little bit. Has it? Even, okay, I gotta world. get out
3: more. Uh, we we care about these things, but Chris, you're calling us into uh, not not on the level of behaviors, but you're you're more yeah. dealing with the level of um, our our meta narrative or the way we see the world. Can you touch a bit on the difference between those and then maybe lay out give us like one or two or three of these of these structures or these assumptions that we have in America just by being Americans that you think we need to begin to question.
4: Hmm. Yeah, um, uh, speaking of limits with with the book I I couldn't really go into all of them and so I I wanted to pick a couple that I just felt were people in my church and maybe your churches would be helped by thinking about, so they might be surprised by it, or they might be like, "Oh, that's attractive to me because I think about that all the time." So one of those things that's maybe may attractive and they think about all the time that they they want to grow in is is the idea of wealth, right? Like right. the endless pursuit of growing your wealth, mm-hmm. um, and, and how how the meta narrative um, that we 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 situate ourselves under in America in particular is like to work for a certain set of time and then to not work for a certain set of time right to retire
2: right, retire early is like a big like oh well, you really made it you know yep. yeah i yeah. retired we, at we, forty. Or in, whatever, the, yeah.
4: in the silicon valley where there is too much money and there's all these they have this thing called vest and rest which is like you vest <laughs> your box at 31 and you rest for like 10 years and then, and then you think about going back to work i mean this is the kind of world <laughs> i live in it's crazy yeah <laughs> Oh So, that, but, so. Uh, I.
3: By the way, I vest yeah. and rest, and when I do the Eucharist on Sunday, I vest, <laughs> and then uh, after the Eucharist on Sunday, I go home
2: and I, I take a down. nap. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a different that's, kind of vesting and resting. That's, that's,
4: that's,
3: Anglican jokes,
2: <laughs> the best jokes.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I, so wealth is one of them that I that I wrote about, and uh, and and then, but another one that's that's maybe more surprising that that's, is in the meta narrative is fame. A lot hmm. of people are. You know there's there's there are a lot of people that are really seeking fame. Yes. But there's also many people that say I don't like the spotlight, I don't want to be famous. But they don't see um you, you know and are are blind to the ways in which our culture disciples us to be noticed and to receive attention, yes. right? Most obvious example being social media, but just building brands and platforms and a kind of identity even, right? Identity right. politics and all these things that are like the uh, overinflation of the individual kind of like hmm. is, is the thing that many people maybe might be surprised to read a chapter on that and be like, oh, I want to skip this chapter because I don't, I don't like the spotlight. I don't want to be on a stage. I don't want to be known, but all of us do want to be recognized for yeah. something that we are or something we've done. And so yeah. some of those are just a couple of the examples of some of the chapters hmm. of the meta narrative. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I read, uh, I read a uh, story the other day that was saying that, um, for the first time ever, as they interview kids, what what they want to be when they grow up, you know, it used to be a lot of astronauts and, you know, that's things. That's me. Like I that. wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I did yeah. too. I thought that was kind of cool, NASA and you know, all that kind of stuff. But for the first time ever, uh, this survey, um, more kids wanted to be a YouTube star than an astronaut. And so, like, this, like, that's dominating their imagination, right? Yeah. It's like, God oh, if I this. could be a YouTube star, yep. that would be the pinnacle of my you know, flourishing. That's kind of what we think of, you know?
3: So. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned fame and you mentioned growth. And uh, the reason why I think this is so important, Chris, the book is, is really good, is because we as Christians have radar for like the list of sins we don't do, right? Right. But then but then we, we, we think, hey, fame is this tool that I can use to build the church.
2: Yeah. Right? That, you can make Jesus famous I, if we're famous. You
3: know, like, there's not... Fame is a-spiritual... Uh, right, yeah. Yeah. and the and the pagan YouTube star is doing it to build, uh, you know his his, uh, pagan wealth. But I'm going to use fame and my billboard, uh, you know, and my, uh, spray tan to build my church, and and I will leverage my popularity for Jesus. Right, and and what your book does is you want to question is that assumption safe? Yeah, yeah. Is there any spiritual cost? To trying to trade and traffic mm-hmm. in that capital, mm-hmm. and Chris, you say yes, uh, I say yes. Ben's the one we have to convince. I don't think he's
2: <laughs> no. That's that's why it's I'm doing not this. Quite I'm there trying yet. to be famous. He, 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 the podcast was famous his idea. Jesus,
4: <laughs> <laughs> think of how many people we could reach. Yeah. Yes. But that is, I mean, honestly, haven't you? You've heard that so many times. No, yeah, I'm lampooning many, it. But think of the what we can do if we were on television, or right, if we think you know invested it, yeah. in this amazing auditorium, and yeah, yeah
3: totally. Yeah. And then we have this black white binary way of thinking. So then we then we shift to Chris. Well, then fame is awful. Fame is bad and it's wrong. And so mm. we can't be famous, uh, and we make sort of this law out of it, this rule out of it, right? So w- I think what your book does really well is it. it the two ditches are fame. There's no spiritual cost to fame, or fame is wrong and bad, and we judge and condemn people who it's do it. It's a sin to
2: to be right? well known.
3: But yeah. rather, we're rather like fame is a part of the fabric of our culture that has spiritual consequences and costs, and we need to be wise as we inhabit that culture. Mm. And you talk about the practice of obscurity as a way to walk through that in a in a Christ like way. Can you say more about that?
4: Yeah, I, I owe a lot to writers like Eugene Peterson and Wendell Berry um, who, who write on this far better than myself. Obscurity is a beautiful word. I, what, I, what I try to do is pull some of the scriptural metaphors that have been so helpful to me uh, of Jesus saying, this is what life in the kingdom of God is like. And he uses all of these examples of things that are what I call hidden in plain sight salt is a, is a great metaphor for that, right? You don't really see it on your food. You don't know something's overly salted until you taste it. It's hidden in plain sight. Um, you know, the seed under right beneath the surface in the ground, the, the yeast into the bread, uh, the treasure, even hidden in a field, the pearl, you know, these are all metaphors he uses. and in all of them, they're hidden. They're, they're, they're obscure in some ways. Um, and so, uh, you know, like a, like a microbe. Um, there, there's thing, there's thing, ways Christians can live that are hidden in plain sight that are either beneath the surface or right on the surface. And you don't see them right away, but you feel their effects and without them, um, you know, they're, there, you know, Jesus says, if salt has lost its taste, like what, what good is it? He doesn't say if salt has mm. lost its, its, you know, it's, it's visual, you know, it doesn't really, it's not really about being seen as much as it's about being, um, Experienced in in the culture. Likewise with yeast and the bread, right? Like you, yeah. the only way you know is when um, the the bread rises and when yes. you see its effects. And so I think for Christians, uh, you know, my heartbeat for people in my church is not that they uh, quit their tech jobs. Hmm. Uh, that that you know that that's not. I'm not interested in convincing people to not work for the companies they're they're working for, but how do you live, um, hidden in plain sight? How, how mm. do you live, um, you know, in, 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 Google and Facebook and working at these companies and slowly watch the gospel and the kingdom kind of like, um, yeah. expand yeah. to use the yeast metaphor, right. In, in people's midst without, without being obnoxious and without being um, heavy handed and without being uh, manipulative yeah. and using the tools that Silicon Valley is already using in spades.
2: Yeah. I think that's great, and I, I just I was reminded of a story I read uh, recently where I can't remember what what (laughs) I can't remember if it was Google or Facebook. It was one of those companies, Uh, but Google or Facebook was trying to like do something that was a little underhanded. I think they were like, yeah, no, I'm serious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Fake news. Sorry. (laughs) Wrong. I'm sorry if I burst anybody's (laughs) bubble. The, seriously though, these these tech companies were the darlings of our culture for so long, weren't they? People are like, wait, yeah. you know, just recently they're like, wait a second, these are really big like business tycoons, you know, like, like this is the like, railroad days. Mm-hmm. Anyway, one of these companies was trying to do something a little underhanded. I think it was like trying to release like a a browser that cooperated with the Chinese government, you know, to do censorship or or like surveillance or something like that. But the employees of this company uh, basically refused to implement it and they challenged their hires up to say, this is wrong, we won't write this software. And they changed, like, like I think it was Google, like they changed their their tack. Their algorithm. Uh, on it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I like that as an example. That wasn't necessarily like a Christianly motivated thing, but like, I like that example. It's not just about like telling people about Jesus at Facebook. It's like, you know, refusing to do something immoral. There's you resistance. Know, or, there's there's res- Yeah, subversion. resistance to something that's unjust. You know?
3: Well, that's a good example of another chapter in your book. Uh, you talk about power and how we tend to traffic. We just finished up a, a whole series on power on our podcast because we we have such a, a sub-biblical understanding of what Jesus-centered, Holy Spirit, triune, power is mm. um, and and part of that's because uh, the church in America has been on the right side of quote power for uh, centuries right and so we we trade almost unconsciously in worldly power uh, and you describe some of the cost of that in your book could you mm. just speak to more of that Chris
4: yeah one of one of the books that I, I read on, on, on power was by a, a professor here at Stanford, um, who, who argues that for all of the, he, he went through all the popular books written by CEOs and some of the major corporate corporate leaders. And he's like, Hey, one thing they didn't include was how manipulative they were through that whole, all of their success. Right. this, here's this, <laughs> here's this wow. CEO who, uh, who's, who's climbed the ladder, who's done it all right. And he's writing his memoir. He's writing his big leadership principles book or whatever. And the one thing he's forgetting is how he threw like 900 people under the bus to get where he is, you know, uh, or how he's
3: doing business, dude,
4: Yeah, yeah. yeah. how he used people, uh, in the process of getting his position of power. So that got me. You know, I, I wasn't thinking about the church at all at that point. No, I'm yeah. <laughs> that doesn't happen in churches. Yeah, yeah so you, you've grateful. never seen a pastor do that. Yeah, um, that was
2: one thing we learned in that <laughs> power series: is that we th- we thank God that this never that we're not like those heathens. <laughs> yeah. In the business world,
4: go ahead, Chris. Guys, go ahead. You guys are Anglicans. I mean, how could you? How oh could yeah, yeah,
2: you? yeah. We we know what it's like to you know wield the worldly power. So <laughs> throw in our history, throw our albs around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway.
4: yeah. So. Um, so yeah, I just got interested in in that and, uh, and, and really, I mean, actually, you know, I, I told you Matt in an email, I said, I've been a huge fan of that series on power because I I think it's challenged me to continue to think about all the nuances that go into this and and also, man, the cost that, um, that Christians are asked to take when it comes to power, which is to experience it so much differently. One one of the more helpful definitions and uh, and helps with this was Andy Crouch's book, Playing God. Are you guys familiar with that? Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I quote him a lot in, in, in the book um, because he shows, uh, he's kind of a journalist, right? So he shows right. stories. And I think our best help in America is actually our brothers and sisters in like the third world, Amen. And, right? And in, in places that the Christian church has never had power, right? If you go to countries in in, in Africa or, or certain places in India and in China,
2: mm-hmm.
4: Japan, they don't have an experience like we have where we were, like you guys said, on top at one point, and then and then now we're like wrestling with, what does it mean to not be in cultural power anymore? I think learning from our brothers and sisters in the international churches and even the ethnic churches in our communities right. now, right, yes. in, in America, with, yes those who come from other countries and plant ethnic churches, um, they, they just understand, right. They're like, we, we've never had power and the way we use power is through our gospel community where true power comes from. And, and what Andy Crouch does is he points out, um, examples across the world of people who have no staff, Hmm. no budget, Mm -hmm. uh, and have tremendous power. Like, in their communities, people listen to, uh, families come to them when they need help, right? Like what does it mean to have true power? It it really looks like more of that kind of vision than someone who has the big building with the big budget and the 50 staff. And that's a type of power, but you know, again, not the kind of power God is, is, has given to us, uh, to, to wield, um, which is kind of Andy Crouch's point.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. It feels to me like coercive. One of the words that kept coming up in that power series was coercive power. Like mm. versus that, that seems to be one distinctive of kingdom power versus non kingdom power is the the yeah. issue of coercion. It's being able. To, we think of power as being able to make somebody do something, yep. whether or not whether or not they want to. Yeah. Um,
3: and then sometimes we we create theologies that project that onto God.
2: Right, we right. think it's good. Right, right. We think we find a way to justify and why endorse, we're doing this yeah, because that's
3: what God does. That's, that's what, what His does. sovereignty means, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. and He, he okay, puts bits and bridles in people's mouths and tells them what to do. I think it says that in the <laughs> Psalm somewhere. Right, yeah. that He
2: wants to do that. Right. And there's something in yeah, Romans. Here, here's,
4: yeah. here's to me. What's interesting though, <laughs> that all works, which is. Part of the problem, it right? Is, right, right. I mean, sin is pretty effective. <laughs> it it works right. to a certain extent. It does grow yeah. churches, right? If if you can just tell people what to do, yeah. if you're a strong personality, right. it does grow businesses. Yeah. It, those those guys that were profiled in that book I was mentioning on power uh, uh, from the Stanford professor, those guys that get to the top of those uh, mm-hmm. organizations, man, it it works to coerce and to manipulate. Yeah. To some level, it just will yeah. never bring about the kingdom of God.
2: Exactly, right. that, and that—that that to me is the the key. And th- that's, I think, where this idea, this ideology, that blinds us. Again, we just think it's automatically good if the church grows, and so we don't mind if the pastor is manipulative or if he's a you know bit of a coercive you know jerkhead. We don't yeah. mind because the church is growing, and we just think, well, that must mean that God's in it and that God's doing something good here. Whereas, mm-hmm. I think, I think the church growing is. Uh, at best, a proxy, like it tells you something, but it doesn't tell you actually what you need to be thinking about and measuring, you yep. know? So, coercive leadership will never grow love. So, mm. you know, when do we start measuring love? When do we start thinking about, oh, is love growing in our community? Mm. You know, that's a practical consideration I think we can make. Yeah. We can be pragmatic about love.
3: Yeah, we won't ask that question, though, unless we do the work you're doing in this book, Chris, which is... Mm. Uh, Taking the assumptions that the—I I made the joke at the beginning of our call—the the American dream is built on assumptions about individualism, wealth, growth, fame, um, those, those kinds of things. You talk on all these things. Yeah. If we don't question those, they, they will inform the ways in which we do kingdom things, and the kingdom of God is a way in and of itself. So we will import logic exterior to the kingdom of God— to do kingdom things, which makes Mm. kingdom things empire things, right? Yeah. Um, And so this is a tough – we're in a weird – I don't know if uh, the news is getting out there to the West Coast, but uh, people are losing their minds right now about, like, who's pro-America and who isn't. Mm. Yeah. Like, people are – Or who's
2: even from America. Or
3: who – and who deserves to be here. Right. And who needs to go back (sighs) to where they – weren't from right? <laughs> right so so uh there's there's uh a big fight and so like Chris when you publish a book that asks uh you know it's written probably for uh all Christians but probably a majority white Christian audience to to look critically at the foundational narratives of the country that they love. Uh you you better get ready, man. You can get some emails. <laughs> right. So like I, how can you uh, he uh, here's my question. Here's my question for you. Here's my uh cheeky question. Mm. Can I be a good American and a good Christian?
4: Uh I actually think okay, one of the one of the interesting, maybe heartbreaking realities, I think, right now of like living in America is that I don't think we know what either of those mean anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What it? I mean, that's I think partly what's so confusing is when when people talk about being a good American. What it you know what it means to be an American is actually the central question that we disagree upon. Mm-hmm. For some, it means to be a person who was born in this country um, and you're three generations from European immigrants. Mm-hmm. That's what it means to be American, right? And and you're what? Right, and you're white. And yeah, you're white. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, but for others, it's broad. It's the person who has just arrived and is undocumented. That person is is American. So I think that's partly what is so difficult for some. Right, like to be an American is to be a good capitalist. Right, but I but I think for for many of us, to be an American is to just to be living here. You know, what I think about when you when you ask that question is. Um, can you be like a good Christian and a good American um, is R- Richard Hayes in um, moral vision of the new Testament. He has this great like whole ending section where he's like going through all those case studies of like his, his theology yep. and his um, one of his case studies is on nonviolence. Right. And, and at, he's like mostly nonviolent. And then he's like, I still just can't get over this one thing. The scriptures really celebrate the centurion's. Hmm. And they don't really mention that the centurions ever quit the army.
2: Yeah,
4: And he's like, while I would say that for the most part, in most cases, uh, one should be nonviolent and one should pursue peace. I just can't get over the fact that the centurions are applauded by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 10. And in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius has that beautiful story where him and he's converted. and yeah. And they don't mention anything about like, Not being Roman or anything like that. And there is a there is a theology right now. Right. That's like um, that. I mostly am sympathetic to that says to be a good Christian is to reject uh, the empire of, of America. And I think there's so much yes and amen there that like, yes, America is the Babylon of the story, um, more Babylon than Jerusalem. Right. And yet at the same time, we have clear examples in church history and in scripture itself with the centurions where I just go, yeah, that's interesting though. I think you can still have a level of commitment to certain empire, um, you know, uh, 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 organizations, for lack of a better term, sure. and be a Christian. And, hmm. you know, Daniel was was one of those examples and Joseph is you know there's m- many Old Testament examples yep. of people kind of rising in the ranks of Egypt or Babylon or, or Rome yeah. even in the yeah. New Testament.
2: Learning learning to live within empire uh you know yeah. in in exile that I mean that can be problematic as well thinking like that but eh, that's yeah a good, that's a good it's a good nuanced thought Chris. Yeah.
3: Yeah Chris. So. I th- I tend to think of it like um there there is this assumption that if if I am um that the way that I support America is to basically be pro-America at all costs. Yeah. This is the same logic that actually functions in these larger churches you're talking about where scandals have happened, mm. where the leaders are saying, we got to be pro-our-church at all costs, right? Yeah. And I, I yeah. think it's the, it's the impulse to deflect, defend, justify, rationalize, and not account for evil, right? Right. Yeah. So, so to be pro-church or to be pro-America means we actually reckon with our wrong. Mm-hmm. Because we care about becoming right, yeah you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah. so so then uh love doesn't look like a tacit endorsement of of everything and you know it's not sunshines and tulips and roses, mm-hmm. but love actually looks like reckoning with reality, and if reality sucks, then we say it sucks mm-hmm. yeah and, and i think I think that yeah. that and that it opens up the possibility of becoming a healthier yeah. uh more more holy yeah. person and, and uh, community
2: yeah. So it's not the preservation of the institution at all costs, you, like right. as it is, right? It, there's, a, there's a vision for what the institution could become uh, and right. calling is, people into that.
4: <laughs> I don't know why, man, you're making me think this is the, kind of the foundations of Protestantism, right? It's like mm. uh, these were people yeah. who were committed, they, in their minds, right, the reformers, more committed to the Catholic Church than those that were going along with a lot of the Catholic doctrine. Right,
2: right. Yeah. Yeah, they they weren't they weren't like tear it down. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like Yeah, they they to with the church.
4: Yeah, they they had a vision for the end where everyone was right. cat one holy catholic church. Yeah,
2: yeah, we're reforming the one holy and apostolic catholic, uh, catholic Still church.
4: forgetting the orthodox people, but yeah, 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 well. They they didn't they were like they don't really exist. Yeah. That was a
2: That was a long time ago. Poor yeah.
4: fellows.
3: <laughs> Poor fellows. So actually actually the most Christian thing to do then is to um prophetically critique yeah. Like our faith, and the most American yeah. thing to do is to prophetically critique America, yes. right? And yeah. I think that— we, As Americans. As and Americans. as
2: people who belong to the church, well, right? and, and then Not so, from outside. Yeah,
3: and then that's, that's, that sort of undercuts the entire like us versus them scapegoating thing that we see, right? So, yeah. So we have anxiety and fear and anger— and we need to find people to blame so that we can rally around that scapegoat and justify ourselves, but also sort of inflict justice or vengeance or mm. uh, retribution against the, the thing that's wrong, the, the mm. unclean, the impurity. And I think to unwind that is to say, you know what, I'm going to let Muslims clean their house, you know what I'm saying? And I'm mm. going to let, uh, I don't know, Venezuela, I'm going to let them decide how they want to run their country. But I'm going to start with like a, Americans and Christians and white people. Like right. that's those are my tribes, and 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 we can repent. Yeah, I I know that we can.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah there's plenty. There's plenty here for us to repent. Yeah, of. when we get past that. Yeah, once we purify our own house completely, then maybe we can start telling other people what to do. Yeah, yeah
3: just yeah, just yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, cheek. Probably not, but still, yeah. Just,
3: just as an example. I mean, yeah. I, I think uh, we, we started talking uh, early uh, in this podcast about sexual ethics, which now we have to leave it in because I'm re- referencing it later on oh, the man. podcast. yeah. But I just Crazy. saw that the guy that uh, wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye, yep. Joshua mm-hmm. Harris, did mm-hmm. you guys see this? He, he and his wife are getting a divorce. Yeah, um, Like a year ago, two years ago, he sort of publicly recanted this book that I think has uh, powerfully shaped the yeah. way that people between the ages of, what, 25 and 45 think about sex, think about mm-hmm. relationships, purity yeah. culture. yeah. And now, like, there's this unraveling, and, I, you know, there's probably tons of, I don't know anything about his divorce. But, oh, so there's an unraveling of his marriage that was, yeah. you know, many people thought, oh, if anybody knows how to be in a relationship, it's the guy who wrote this book, right? right. But I just want to say, like, you know, unbelievers or um, people who, who don't confess Christ, they see that, mm. Right? they see sort of like, do we have integrity to mm-hmm. speak to the world about sexual ethics? Well, the paragons that we hold up yeah. are, uh, are, are sort of losing credibility, you know, all over the place. And so the, the thing to do there isn't to sort of like defend Joshua Harris. I mean, he's probably a great guy. I don't, I don't know him at all. But it's rather to say, yeah, you're right.
2: <laughs> like Yeah. You, didn't you're know, right. He was 22 when he wrote that book we don't know, or something. We don't you know, know what, what we're mean? doing. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying?
3: We don't know what yeah, we're doing. Yeah. Um, yes. And I, I think your book helps us do that, Chris, from not only a Christian perspective, but also for a, um, a Christian living in America perspective, mm. to own things, to name things and own things that we couldn't see otherwise, mm-hmm. and to begin to reckon with them so that we can have a prophetic, powerful
4: ministry in the world
3: that matters to people who mm. don't follow Jesus.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I... I think one of the things that purity culture is a good example of is just overly simplistic theology. And, um, Mm. I think one of the best things we can do for people who come out of that, man, my church is full of people who are coming like out of that kind of whole season and culture of like, I was a youth pastor during that time. So I'll say I was a part of the problem probably. Mm. And one of the best things we can do is affirm that life is really complicated and we can affirm that, um, Ethics is very difficult and we can affirm that the issue of divorce is not simplistic and the Mm. issue of sexuality is not simplistic, but that through the care and love of Jesus Christ and his teachings, we can help each other walk through and live faithfully. And we can also learn to forgive each other when we don't. Yeah. Um but hmm. that overly simplistic theology I think it has led to that's one of the ways it's uh, it, it's really led to people being hurt and that's what pains me as a pastor is it it just ends up hurting people. Yes.
3: Mm. Well, your book less well of more. I just want to say this too. I think it gives us a imagination for how to be on mission. I think increasingly these uh, assumptions these uh, maybe maybe the American gospel <laughs> that you name in here individualism fame wealth growth they people are increasingly hurting because of it. Yeah, like yeah. depression and suicide and burnout, all of this. People are hurting, and as Christians, we can name why. Yeah, we can name why. We, yeah. you know, like we can we can hold the kingdom of God next to their pain and say, "Of course you're hurting. This is how you're you're living in a way that uh, is in tension with how you were created." And we are t- attempting to live in the way God intended, do you want to join us? Do you mm-hmm. want to join in the healing and reconciling and redeeming of all things? So I think I think your book too, Chris, I just want to commend it again, that it gives us a, a more robust imagination of how to live on mission, yeah. connecting to the actual pains people have. Right. You know, the actual things that are chewing that. them up and spitting them out, mm-hmm. the gods mm-hmm. of this age... Uh, rather than using the gods of this age to build our church, we can name the gods of this age and, and yeah. invite people into an alternative way of living. So, thanks for your book, brother. Thanks yeah, for your thank min- you. thanks for your ministry. God bless you there in Silicon Valley.
4: Say hi thank to our you. friends at uh, Google. <laughs> <laughs> they already are saying hello to you right now. <laughs> right, <yeah>. They're watching <laughs> us right
2: now. Yeah,
3: <laughs> I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go search something on Yahoo. All right, uh, we'll uh, we'll Ding. chat. We'll chat with you again, Chris. Next time you write a book, uh, awesome. you know. We'll have you back on. Maybe you can figure this non-violence thing out with. Uh, oh my goodness! With Richard Johnson. Hayes. With yeah. you and Richard Hayes can write a <laughs> book <both> together. <laughs> uh, take right. care, man. See Thanks, you guys. See you.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you enjoy learning from this podcast, please be sure to show your support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. Be sure to share with your friends on social media too. And we would love to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. You can join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator